Welcome everybody to Brandywine Global's podcast series around the curve. I'm Katie Klingensmith with Brandywine Global, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Mike Arno, who is a portfolio manager and part of the global fixed income team and is specifically focused on emerging markets with a deep background, especially in Latin America. And there's been a lot of conversations as of late about emerging markets, so it's great that Mike can join us. Just get us started, Mike. There's been a lot of volatility this year, a lot of movements in emerging markets. Um, what, what have been the big drivers? What's going on? Hey, Katie. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, listen, it's a, a local emerging markets. We we deal with volatility every year, whether that's up or down. Uh, this year has been a good run so far for, uh, for uh, emerging markets, uh, especially in local markets. Indices through the end of July are up anywhere around 10%. And when you really peel that back and start to look at some of the some of the countries, had some really solid performance. Got Colombia up 40%, Mexico, Brazil up 20%, Hungary up 20%. Uh, you know, even even Peru, which threw out another president earlier this year, is up 15 or so percent. So uh, we've seen some really strong returns in, in the emerging market space, but some differentiation. This rally really started back in October. Uh, we saw the uh, decline in the uh, in treasury volatility that really sparked a rally in risk assets, whether it's equities, high yield, uh, and local markets. Uh, so, you know, we've really been um, enjoying this rally since uh, probably late October, after a pretty sizable drawdown up until then from uh, in 2022 across the, across most markets. Well, last fall was a really good setup. Uh, you know, you had very attractive high nominal yields. Um, that we wrote, you know, we wrote about that briefly in, in a summer blog piece. Um, very elevated inflation rates, you know, driven by a combination of COVID era stimulus, uh, fiscal stimulus, similar to what we saw in the U.S. Uh, you had global energy and food prices uh, following the the conflict in the Ukraine with Russia. Um, you know, so really a, a handful of drivers pushing inflation uh, across markets to levels we haven't seen for a long time. What got us excited is that you had very aggressive central banks hiking rates, almost Volcker-esque in uh, some of these EM countries. And uh, we felt that uh, with peaking inflation, tight monetary policy, that was a great setup for see some, uh, to see some good returns uh, over the next uh, you know, year or so. There's a lot to unpack there, and I'm fascinated by the Peru reference and thinking about how much um, a lot of emerging markets have benefited in spite of perhaps what's going on domestically. But it gets me to one of a backdrop question. I think a lot of us have been surprised by the growth momentum that has come out of the U.S. in the past year. I mean, we really started this year with a lot of fear. How much of the emerging market success is really about that U.S. growth story? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think earlier this year, you know, we thought about the setup. Uh, you know, markets were really excited about the reopening in China, and that's actually been quite the disappointment so far. Um, even in the U.S., I mean, we've had to deal with a, a regional banking crisis uh, and a shifting further higher in uh, U.S. terminal rates from the Fed. And despite all this, uh, local markets have actually pr- continued to perform quite well. And I think that really goes back to the fact that we were experiencing very high nominal yields. Uh, we saw a catalyst for inflation to uh, start to decline. You know, high high policy rates would um, dampen credit, uh, dampen consumption growth, 
that would have a positive knock-on effect with the balance of payments of some of these countries. Um, and, uh, for, you know, via goods demand, very similar setup that we saw in the U.S. Um, so it hasn't necessarily been uh, all driven by U.S. growth. Obviously, countries with linkages to the U.S., like Mexico, um, that's a country where you've certainly had uh, one of the drivers being the uh, the growth story in the U.S. You know, remittances, for example, have, have continued to, to uh, come in quite strong. Uh, partially driven by the fact that we've got a strong labor market in the U.S. in both construction and services. Uh, so that's something that we continue to, to keep an eye on uh, as it relates to uh, remittances going forward. Uh, the one interesting thing with remittances is you can assume pretty much that 100% of those are, are converted back to peso, uh, which has probably been one of the drivers that we've uh, in, in the Mexican peso and the surprise to markets, uh, in addition to a very hawkish central bank. We'll definitely get back to some of the country dynamics, but it, it does seem like just those those nominal yields like have been really attractive for EM. And as risk appetite is generally picked up um, in 2023, how much do you think that the success of EM local currency markets is just thanks to an interest in carry? Yeah, this is an interesting topic and very topical right now, especially as we start to enter in uh, rate cutting cycles, especially amongst the um, higher yielding markets. Um, I'd say the uh, performance so far this year uh, really has been driven, I'd say more important from the fact that you did have these high nominal yields, um, you know, uh, multi-decade in some cases inflation rates um, from the excess uh, stimulus from COVID and, and as I was saying earlier, energy and food prices. Um, but the aggressive monetary tightening has finally uh, crimped demand and uh, goods imports. Uh, transportation prices have come down. Actually, there's actually in some in some countries, uh, you know, very meaningful for their uh, balance of payments and the current account. The uh, transportation costs. You know, if we remember all the shipping challenges uh, from a, a year or so ago, um, that translated into very elevated uh, cargo rates. Um, those have come down. Back, they've normalized essentially, which has been very helpful from a balance of payment standpoint. Um, so those are some of the factors that have been helpful in driving markets uh, this year. And now going forward, uh, one of the things that we're gonna be keeping an eye on is uh, the central banks cutting rates uh, and what that does to carry. And will uh, some of these countries be able to maintain the performance as they reduce the carry attractiveness of their currencies? So, I mean, just in summary, this is not just a yield story. This is also a macro story. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, um, you know, it's definitely a macro story. Um, in in certain markets, uh, you know, like Hungary, for example, last year, the uh, gas prices, uh, European natural gas prices spiked. That had a massive impact on current account. A huge drag, uh, which led to a significant weakening of, uh, of their currency. Uh, which resulted in the central bank uh, hiking rates very, very aggressively into the high teens uh, to provide that stability for the currency. Um, in some other countries, you know, we saw some political noise and volatility that also, uh, you know, while they were dealing with high inflation, you also tacked on some political risk premia on there as well. So it really um, idiosyncratic across different countries uh, with, amongst the high yielders. Um, and then you have the what we you know, like to think of as the lower yielding countries 
um, whereas their policy choice uh, tended to be FX intervention through the use of reserves. Uh, so these guys didn't hike rates as aggressively as uh, uh, some of the other high yielding markets. And, and I think that reserve intervention was more common among the Asian countries. I wanted to get back to your reference around uh, China, uh, their reopening really being lackluster. Tell me about the dynamics in Asia and you know how much of it really is a China story or is it about the dyna other dynamics within countries or across countries? Asia as a region in emerging markets this year and local markets is up around 2%. Um, so really lagging the uh, the index, which is up uh, you know, roughly around 10% uh, year to date through the end of July. I think there's three main points on Asia and why they've lagged. Uh, one, you know, we didn't have the drawdown in, in Asia that we did last year in some of these other markets. So it's partially a result of that. Some of these markets last year had pretty significant drawdowns um, through October, and Asia didn't experience those same level of drawdowns. So lower volatility uh, was one of them. Uh, negative carry. Uh, you know, these central banks avoided the big rate increases and, you know, relied more on the FX intervention. Uh, you'd be shocked at the relative policy rates across some of these markets, uh, you know, in Malaysia, where Malaysian policy rates are 250 basis points below the Fed. Thailand, 325 basis points below the Fed. Even Indonesia uh, is 25 basis points above. Uh, South Korea, 200 basis points below. So carry amongst these markets is uh, very low and deeply negative in some cases. Um, so lastly, and I think this also ties back a little bit to the negative carry, is the fact that we've had a um, you know a weakening RMB and an underwhelming China reopening. Had that not been the case, had uh, RMB been strengthening, we had a, a pretty sizable reopening. Um, then the negative carry influence on these currencies probably would have been less of a of a drag. Uh, but that's that has not been the case. So I think that's really what some of the drivers are of the weakness uh, or the, you know, in Asia markets relative to some of the other places this year. Fair. And uh, Mike, you certainly uh, explained that yield is not everything that's going on, but it does seem like it's one element of the Latin American story that has made it attractive. Uh, generally speaking, how would you summarize the, the big trends in the continent? On the inflation side, uh, you had a, a huge spike in inflation in the region. Some countries, it was driven by, you know, like Chile, for example, massive COVID era stimulus. In their case, they tapped their pension funds four times. Uh, there's, you know, big stimulus efforts across other countries in the region as well. So you had a, a surge in consumption relative to trend, uh, very similar to the U.S. Uh, you had a surge in goods imports. Um, and then obviously, uh, you know, all these countries had to deal with food and energy price shocks from last year from uh, the Ukraine invasion. So uh, very elevated inflation. However, we had a, uh, as I was saying earlier, Volcker-esque response from the central banks in uh, Chile, Brazil. And unlike Asia, where I was talking about relative policy rates, if you look at Latin America, the relative policy rates are actually, again, multi-decade highs spread to the Fed funds rate. Um, and with uh, inflation and inflation expectations, uh, you know, these countries rely or central banks uh, do surveys on a monthly basis on expectations of inflation over the next one, two years and sometimes five year periods. Uh, they were able to re-anchor uh, the medium term inflation expectations, which generated uh, actually very high real policy rates, ex ante, of course, uh, but 
uh, in peeling back and looking at, at the underlying inflation dynamics. Um, you know, we viewed that uh, you know, there was there was um, definitely support for inflation to, to roll, whether it was contractionary monetary policy would lead to lower demand for goods uh, you know, and, and services in some cases. And also uh, food and energy prices have come down significantly. So that would be a catalyst to see inflation uh, decline closer towards their target. And we've seen a, a lot of progress actually in in some of these countries, and uh, and that's why we're entering in the rate cutting cycle um, across a number of these markets. Chile kicked off 100 basis point cut in July. We just had Brazil cut um, uh, a few days ago. Um, so you know we ex there's ex expectations for Colombia to start in the fall. You know Mexico somewhere in the fall or in the early part of 24. Uh, so you know these these countries have done a, a fantastic job. From the monetary policy standpoint, and uh, you know, in fighting inflation, um, and we expect them to, to be able to start cutting rates now. So, so it sounds like perhaps we're at a bit of a fork in the road uh, about opportunities in Latin America or the, the macro momentum in Latin America. Is that fair? Some of these markets are up twenty to forty percent. You know, in Colombia's case, forty. There's a lot of other stuff going on there, um, but uh, you know, we've had pretty strong returns. Uh, yields are you know, fairly attractive. They're not extreme like they were last fall, uh, but relative to their own history, relative to some peers, looking at real rates, uh, looking at ex-ante real rates, uh, we think there's still a good opportunity in this market. But, uh, you know, I don't expect to see another 20% in the next six to 12 months. Uh, but I do think they can uh, generate some attractive returns um, over that period. So the very success of bringing inflation down I means central banks can be cutting rates, which arguably makes it a little less attractive from an investment perspective. Yeah, I think um, what's going to matter now is, uh, you know, as far as the disinflationary process continues, um, will what does the growth profile look like for the world? Uh, will we see some sort of recovery or rebound in China? Uh, and I think that would support, uh, probably continue to support these currencies and uh, these markets. So, so given uh, the team's focus on Latin America, I'd love to go a little deeper in a couple of the countries. Um, I know that you really liked Colombia early on. Um, and tell us about the dynamics over the last you know, six, nine, 12 months and what you see going forward. I think Colombia has been a classic Brandywine opportunity. Uh, we like to look at everything in terms of price risk and information risk. So in, in Colombia's case, the information risk mar markets were petrified that we had a leftist uh, president for the first time in, uh, I think, Colombia's history, uh, Gustavo Petro, who is a known entity. He's been in politics for a really long time, um, but uh, he came, took office in uh, August of 22, uh, won through the second round in the in the spring. Um, very confusing when he first took office. You know, a lot of mixed messages from members of, of his government, especially regarding energy sector. You'd have one person saying one thing and then the next day, someone's saying the complete opposite as it relates to uh, you know, you know, future energy development, things like that. Um, there's also a, and this is probably uh, also weighed on markets, a huge concern with his heavier uh, left-leaning reform agenda. So pension reform, healthcare reform, labor reform, and really trying to think of, you know, people were concerned about the, uh, you know, uh, for example, the pension reform, what that would do to demand for local bond market. Uh, if you're yeah, if you're changing up uh, the, you know, the pension system and then also obviously the fiscal costs to that. 
So ultimately, our, our we got really excited because the information risk was uh it was pretty dire. Um, couldn't really <laughs> find too many people that were that were positive on uh, on the setup there. Uh, our view was that uh, given the makeup of Congress, he would ultimately face a pretty significant constraints and would not be able to push these re uh, reforms through. Uh, and then once markets realized that, you'd see a big reduction in risk premium. Um, on the valuation side, what we like to talk about is price risk. Uh, you had nominal yields, you know, up 14, 14 and a half percent spread. The treasury is extremely elevated. Um, the, you know, Colombian Mexican local rates tend to trade close to each other. Uh, in this case, when uh, we looked at this, uh, cult, you know, the local Colombian bonds were trading at a spread to local Mexican bonds that were ranked at the 98th percentile. So uh, spreads were very wide relative. And when we looked at it versus Brazil, Colombia usually has a yield that's uh, well below the Brazilian yields. And in this case, they were trading on top of each other. Uh, so very attractive setup uh, is what got us really excited about Colombia. Uh, and we've seen some of the constraints uh, over the last few months. And you know, as we suspected, or, or, or as our investment thesis, part of our investment thesis, was that he would not be able to push any of this stuff through. And then that's been the case so far. So obviously a very specific thesis around an individual country. And it sounds like there's a lot of heterogeneity within Latin America. You mentioned Brazil was also at the beginning of a cutting cycle. What are the dynamics in Brazil? Yeah, Brazil, um, you know, it's been, a, I'd say, you know, with Lula winning uh, a very close election, uh, you have Lula coming back, uh, what could be for one term. Uh, again, a shift to the left. There's there was a lot of um, uh, this, you know, a lot of shift to the left in Latin America during this these last this last election cycle, and that could have been you know that could have been related to COVID. Uh, you know, one of the outcomes of COVID was you saw poverty and extreme poverty rates throughout Latin America rise uh, pretty significantly again. So that that was probably part of a uh, part of that shift back to the left. Uh, but in Brazil's case, uh, you know, you had the the central bank taking the daily beating from Lula and the press uh, has been he's been complaining about high uh, interest rates uh, since he's joined um, uh, in December. Um, so we've got the central bank who's been very patient. Uh, they produce a focus survey every week. That is uh, uh, one of the part of that survey is expectations around inflation. And we've uh, seen that decline and approach uh, get closer to central banks uh central target uh and that's allowed us not only you know so expectations of inflation but also inflation itself has been coming down so that's really opened up um, the central bank to uh start cutting rates and ex ante policy rates in brazil are very elevated uh you know so very attractive from a from an fx standpoint too but gives them a lot of scope to start the rate cutting cycle and we think there uh, they'll probably be gradual at first um, just to make sure inflation is actually coming down. There's some expectation that you could see um, CPI rise through the, the latter part of this year uh, a bit, but um, you know they're keeping an eye on that, and I think they'll be gradual in, um, in cutting. It's not just a few categories that are driving the disinflation process. There's, there's lower prices across a number of categories, um, so that, that's been helpful. And this is in the context of growth that's actually coming better than expected. So it seems like every country has its own dynamics, of course. And um, you already mentioned that Mexico has benefited from remittances from workers in the U.S. buying Mexican peso. And um, I, I know Mexico 
just many closer, much closer economic ties with the U.S. What else is driving Mexico? Um, similar case, I think you had, uh, you know, they're benefiting, obviously, from the U.S. growth. Uh, central bank has been very hawkish. Uh, they've been very careful as far as following Fed policy. Uh, so there's another market where you've got a very, you know, very elevated uh, high XNE real rates. Um, and uh, I think it's really those 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 three things. And, and in addition to, you know, some of the uh, benefits that uh, Mexico will see from, you know, reshoring efforts. Um, so, you know, I think I, I've seen some interesting utilization data uh, from warehouses and actually they're, they're very, uh, there's not a lot of space available, put it that way. Um, so that's an interesting dynamic that we'll, we'll watch through the FTI uh, numbers. Beyond those three biggies in Latin America, are there other countries that you are particularly watching either for from a risk perspective or an opportunities perspective? In Asia, uh, given the underperformance, we're always uh, evaluating things that have underperformed. Um, you know, I think one of the interesting things or, or one of the things we're following is just outbound tourism in China. Uh, that has a pretty significant impact on the balance of payments of countries like Thailand and Malaysia. Um, so watching that as a potential opportunities and, you know, potential shift to markets that have lagged or, uh, uh, you know, as, as the yield opportunities uh, compress in the high yielders. Uh, then that that may also make a rotation uh, make sense in some of the other uh, laggards. So watching uh, some markets in um, in Asia as it relates to some of the China tourism and just general China recovery uh, as well, because uh, these countries would obviously uh, stand to benefit from that. Uh, as it relates to China, you know, we're really paying attention to what's going on in the property sector. Um, you know, that's an area where you need to keep an eye on that because of demand for commodities. Uh, it's also, you know, fairly significant driver of Chinese growth. Uh, so we think that's an important sector to keep an eye on. The, the bonds, uh, corporate bonds in that space have um, traded down pretty significantly this year, uh, trading at very distressed levels. Uh, so keeping an eye on some of the stuff that's going on there. Uh, the other thing that we've really been paying attention to or starting to at least um, you know, as yields come down in some of these markets, um, the, the you know, you asked this question uh, a bit earlier, it was just about um, carry and, and these high yielding FX markets and their ability to perform as central bank policy starts to get priced in. So Chile was as one of the most aggressive central banks in hiking rates. They're also going to be one of the most aggressive cutting. Uh, there's somewhere north of 700 basis points of cuts priced in through the end of next year, of, uh, end of 2024. Uh, and what we've seen in the carry across the different tenors, so when we look at FX carry, we look at one month, three month, six month, 12 month, the 12 month carry has fallen from a peak of 7% down to 1.6. Um, so keeping an eye on that and, um, you know, how can you, if, if we don't have the China recovery, um, will that reduced carry cushion weigh on the currency? So that's one of the things that we're, we're doing some work on it and, uh, and watching closely. Yeah, no, there certainly are a lot of open questions right now uh, around the direction of, of emerging markets. Well, well, so you have mentioned throughout some different political factors in individual countries and to some extent regions. Um, just generally speaking, are, are there geopolitical risks that are really driving your investment theses right now? Obviously, as you said, the, the local uh, domestic politics are, are are very important, and we, we pay attention to the election cycles. 
from geopolitics, uh, I think what you'll see in, in a number of these countries, and some of these countries have already been doing this in like Asia, for example, I think they'll play off this, uh, this sort of US-China uh, rivalry and sort of extract value from both sides uh, is how I would see it, uh, it without them really taking sides. Um, but I think that that's an interesting way that they'll play it. Um, you know, Mexico is clearly going to benefit from, a, um, I would say, U.S. government mandated reshoring theme um, for strategic sectors. Uh, you know, in Asia, there's going to be some countries that are going to benefit from just diversifying supply chains, uh, moving some of their production outside of China and into another country. Um, so I think that those are some of the, the, the major thematics that uh, we're looking at from a geopolitical standpoint. So just to wrap this up, Mike, I want to take advantage of the seat that you have in the multi-sector team. How do you think emerging market opportunities stack up from a broad global fixed income perspective with other opportunities? Some local markets have had a good run. Uh, you know, in the fall of last year, when we really ramped up our allocation to uh, local emerging markets in our multi-sector portfolios, um, you know, high yield credit was also pretty attractive back then as well. But the, the relative valuation opportunity really stood out to us in local emerging markets. So as that yield compresses um, and that, that relative um, attractiveness dissipates, I would expect uh, you'd probably see uh, some of the, uh, that allocation being redeployed back to some of the other spread sectors, uh, whether it's in high yield corporates or investment grade corporates or even structured credit um, uh, around the world. Well, thank you so much for all of those big and very specific insights, Mike Arno. Um, and thank you to our listeners for once again, listening in to an Around the Curve podcast from Brandywine Global.